Hello and welcome to Byline Radio and this is What the Papers Don't Say with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, Boris Johnson and Russian interference with British politics. Was he complicit or just ignorant? To answer that question, I'll be joined by Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu and as the Prime Minister rushes off to embrace another repugnant regime in Saudi Arabia, what lessons has he learned? We'll be joined later by Asad Raymond, who is the director of War on Want. As always, though, we want you to join in with us as well. If you've got a contribution to make to the debate, or if our discussion prompts you to ask a question, we'll just request microphone access and we will let you on. This is Byline Radio. And if you're new to this, well, let me just explain that we are funded by ordinary people like you, not by oligarchs or wealthy proprietors. So to support us, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. In return for your hard-earned cash, you'll get a wonderful monthly newspaper edited by our next guest, Hardeep. You'll also be helping to support Byline TV, the Byline Times podcast, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. So head over to bylinetimes.com to find out details of subscriptions and membership, and do support our work if you possibly can by taking out a Byline Times subscription. Let's speak then with Hardeep Matharu. And Hardeep, I want to talk a lot about Boris Johnson and Russia. Firstly, though, a breaking news story in the last few hours. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe released from Iran and back on her way to the UK. Yes. Hello, Adrian. And hello, everyone listening. Yes, we start with some rare good news, Adrian, which is is, is really, really good to hear. So uh, Nazanin is believed to be back on her way uh, to Britain. Her MP has said that she won't uh, she won't have total peace of mind until she's back home uh, in London. But she is believed to be en route. And uh, yeah, really, really is a great bit of news. I mean, her family and herself have been through an absolutely awful ordeal. She's been detained in Iran. I think what we really need to see now is a proper investigation into what has happened along the way. We know that our current prime minister, as Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, uh, made some comments uh, which you know, obviously impacted uh, her detainment. I think her whole experience needs to be looked at and I would like to think that it would be a chance for us to assess our relationships and our partnerships with countries like Iran and others. Um, and on an interesting side note, Boris Johnson is heading to Saudi Arabia today. So we'll see whether that actually happens. But really great news. Yeah, absolutely. And it should be made clear as well that another person who had been kept by the Iranian authorities, mm-hmm. uh, a lady called uh, Anusha Ashuri, has also been released by Iran. Uh, at stake, officially at least anyway, was this hundreds of millions of pounds, which Iran said that Britain owed, dating back to the Shah of Iran's time prior to the uh, revolution in Iran. There was some suggestion that Britain's ability to pay that debt, which the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss admitted was a debt owed by Britain, some suggestion that US-led sanctions had prevented the repayment of that, and also that the United States was unwilling to allow Britain to have its prisoners released before US prisoners were released. I'm not sure what's gone on behind the scenes to ensure both of those obstacles to be overcome, but overcome they have been, and these two captives are now freed, which is great news. Exactly, exactly. And it is so rare to have a bit of good news. Uh, Yeah, I I think it's fantastic. Yeah, well, just to say, uh, and we can't emphasize this enough, uh, Hardeep, if people want to ask you questions about what you're going to lay out before us, if people have got comments to make about what we're going to talk about now, which is the influence of Russia and Putin in particular on UK public life and what Boris Johnson knew about this, in what sense he was implicated, in what sense and to what degree he was ignorant, please just request a microphone and we'll try and get as many of your calls and comments on as we can, as long as you've got something sensible to say. 
between now and one o'clock. And as I say, a little bit later on, we're going to be speaking to Azed Rayman uh, from War on Want as well. He's got some very particular things to say about Britain's involvement with Saudi Arabia, which is kind of our go-to oil state now that Russian energy supplies, both oil and gas, are seen as off-limits to the UK. So, Hardeep, firstly, just give us a sense then of the extent of Russian influence on UK life and politics prior to the invasion of Ukraine? Yes, well, I think it's been extensive. I think that has been extensively shown as well. You know, Adrian, I do think this is one of the biggest scandals of our time. Uh, Britain's cosy relationship with Russian oligarchs, the fact that our capital city is known as Londongrad, which is something a committee, a parliamentary committee uh, noted. And the scandal isn't just that we have Londongrad and we have so much uh, Russia-linked money swirling around the capital, in our museums, in our private schools, in our culture, and our politics as well. That's not, it's not that in itself is, is a problem and scandalous, but it's what has happened to cover up or to turn a blind eye to the repercussions of that. You know, Britain is arguably now so compromised by the fact that its wealth is linked to Russia and people uh, connected to the Putin regime, and also that it's not done anything about that and the signals that will have sent to Putin. So ahead of, I mean, as Peter Dukes, our executive editor on Buying Times, and uh, journalists like Carol Cadwallader you know, there, there have been documenting for a number of years that there are sort of interesting and potentially problematic relationships, uh, especially in terms of money and property and potential political influence uh, around members of the British uh, political class, media class and, and Russians. And it's not just all Russians, it's people who have direct links or have had direct links to the Putin regime. So we we had all of that, you know, th- this was all being investigated. The other thing that was also um, going on at the same time is we had, you know, MPs, MPs, some MPs were sort of saying, look, there is a lot of Russian influence in British politics, it does need to be uh, looked at. And they were sort of lone voices that, you know, nothing really came of that, but that was going on. And then we had two parliamentary committees, both chaired by Conservative MPs. It was the Digital Culture Media and Sport Committee um, and the Intelligence and Security Committee. And both of them, they looked at two different things. The first one looked at fake news and disinformation. And the second one looked into directly Russian influence in British politics. And both of them found credible evidence that suggested that there had been interference, uh, not only in referendums in this country and elsewhere, but also raised these points about London grads and wealth in the city. And both of them uh, suggested that you know, this was in further inquiry was needed. What's really interesting about the Russia report was it was suppressed by Boris Johnson ahead of the last general election. And it specifically said, you know, the capital city is is known as London grad. And there are several instances of, of influence we can point to. And the reason the security services can't definitively say that there has been interference or this is the effects of the influence is because it hasn't been tasked to look at that. It hasn't been tasked to look for it. And so that was also going on, which was a problem. And then there were all the alarm bells along the way, which was actions that Putin was taking, which we didn't seem to do much about, um, granted, along with other countries in the West, but but we didn't. So he, he had already, um, we'd seen what happened in Moldova and Georgia. We'd already seen... Um, Obviously, in 2014, we had the annexation of Crimea, the Donbass. We had the shooting down of MH17, the plane where 300 passengers died. We had, um, you know, a number of years before, we had Alexander Litvinenko was killed. We then had the Skripal poisonings in Salisbury, which led to the death of Dawn Sturgis, a British citizen. And again, all of these alarm bells didn't really do anything about them. A few years after the Crimea was annexed, Boris Johnson intimated that it was the fault of NATO in the EU uh, expanding 
And a few days after the Skripal poisonings, he went to uh, an Italian villa party uh, by held by Evgeny Lebedev, who is uh, the the Russian owner of the Evening Standard and independent uh, independent newspapers, whose father is a former KGB officer. And so there then. What else was going on was Boris Johnson in particular and his close links as foreign secretary, now prime minister, to various um, Russian oligarchs and also his uh, focus on wealth and, and also his, the role he played in London. So all of these things were going on. And to me, they don't just point to, uh, oh, we sort of lost our way and sort of um, sort of went off the rails a bit and that was a mistake. It was, you know... It, <laughs> There's a systematic response from people in the British media class in this country who did not want to look too much at Russian influence in this country, and especially not uh, if it touched on anything to do with Brexit. And where that has led us is to the point where Putin has, has had to start a war for everyone to, to wake up and think, God, this man's dangerous. And also led us to the point where we're so compromised now anyway, that any sanctions and any sort of economic uh, uh, policies being introduced now are really too little too late. I suppose the question is, to what extent was Boris Johnson just following his instinct as a conservative politician? There's a very interesting piece written by Danny Finkelstein, Baron Finkelstein, who was a conservative peer who's advised, amongst others, John Major, and William Hague, and he says that Britain was right to embrace the oligarchs. He says that it was part of the West's initiative to encourage economic liberalisation. Britain was playing its role in that by encouraging entrepreneurial oligarchs to come to the UK and to develop wealth networks and so on across continents. And the fact that we have got such an extent of Russian wealth now embedded within London and UK society actually makes it easier for us to sanction Russia. So perhaps Johnson, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of think of this in the fairest way possible, was simply following those conservative instincts. Mm. Or, I mean, it's it's an interesting point, Adrian, and and I guess you've got to look at him and his own tendencies. You know, what what is he attracted to uh, as a politician, as a person? What is he amenable to as well? Because I think there's there's one thing about encouraging Russian, you know, Russian businesses and and entrepreneurs and sort of supporting uh, of that, but I think the issue is. It didn't. Did it really just stop at that, or what? What has come along with that sense of uh, support for business, Russian businesses and investments? And you know, and and we know that we there were a lot of golden visas issued to to Russian oligarchs. You know, we know that people gained citizenship. They became part of the fabric of this country, and we know that um, you know significant amounts of donations have gone to the Conservative Party from people who, uh, yeah, you'd call Russian oligarchs and have been some of them linked to the Putin regime. So I think it's it's looking at, you know, is it ever just, in, has it ever just been encouraging modern Russia to develop itself and to develop a relationship with it, which keeps everyone on the, uh, you know, on the straight and narrow? Or has it been, has it gone beyond that? And if it has gone beyond that and started to seep into political influence and, and matters of concern around the media and elsewhere, why has that happened? And I think you're right. The question is, is Boris Johnson in particular, has he been somebody whose personality, both politically and, and personally, has has been that way inclined? But as you said, I would love to hear what other people have to say, because um, even though, as, as you know, Adrian, we're not in the establishment media, we're still in a media, uh, a media bubble. So I'd love to hear from people and see, you know, what their take is on it. And do they think that this scandal has been pushed aside for many years and and why that is hello 
There we go. I think we've just had a slight technical glitch there, Hardeep. I warned you that we would do. This is Adrian Goldberg here. I, I knew we would. This is Adrian Goldberg here on Byline Radio. We're going to go and get one or two callers on in just a moment. So if you've not tuned in before, just to remind you that Byline Radio comes from the Byline Times. If you want to support our work, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times, which is a fabulous monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep. And if you take out a subscription to the page, you're supporting the work of this radio station, of the Byline Times podcast, Byline TV, and so on. So just find out more at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll find details of how to subscribe. Kathy, you've joined us, I think, with a comment or a question. Welcome to Byline Radio. Hello. Hi there. Hi there. Um, hi there. Yeah, just following on um, from what we're saying about Boris Johnson, really, about you know, how deep does it run? Is it his personality? Um, you know, how deep is he in? How, you know, is he connected, etc.? cetera? Um, I think it goes a little bit <clears throat> further back to from before he was actually made mayor. And um, yesterday I came across um, a really, really good piece which was done by <clears throat> Michael Weiss, as you know, works with, he's out there at the moment with... Um, with John Sweeney. And um, in 2013, Michael, Rice, uh, Michael Weiss wrote a piece on, um, let me tell you what it was called. It was called In Plain Sight, the Kremlin's London Lobby. Does anybody recall that? No, I don't know that, Cathy. I don't know if Hardeep does. I don't know. But um, within that, he told us about um, speaking to one of his sources, and he took us back to. Um, I mean, this was this was at the time now where the Conservatives, um, you know, the Russia Forum and everything was exposed, and um, um, Nalbin was exposed. So, going Nalbin, um, if I'm pronouncing that right, um, as a, as a, you know um, part of a, part of a Russian op. But he took us back to 2013, and he was telling us. Um, then of a time where um, Boris Johnson was invited to the um, Russian embassy. Um, and, and this was um, back in 2004, we're talking about now. And Greg Hans has actually told, told a story about it. And there was something um, back then called the Fast Track Donor Club and a chap called Sergei Christo. Now, Boris Johnson was actually the guest speaker there back in 2004 um, at the Fast Track Donor Club. And you know, this was before the assassination of um, Alexander Litvinenko um, um, uh, and everything. But um, basically what, what that was, it was to encourage donors to the Conservative Party in 2004 um, to back young Conservatives. And um, they were basically trying to, it was like a, you know, the Russian embassy had word from Moscow that they were trying to find ways of getting money into the Conservatives. Yeah, because they'd fallen out with, um, with uh, you know, with, with Labour and all of that kind of thing. So um, <laughs> I think it really does stretch back to those times. There's a long history there, long history with his dad. Um, you know, long history, you know, his, his family are from there, you know what I mean? So, mm. yeah, well, Kathy, uh, let me let me bring Hardeep back in. There's two things there, um, Hardeep. Kathy is talking about the Russian political influence, and we know that although the Conservative Party had been the principal beneficiaries of donations from Russian sources, and of course, we must be clear to emphasize that not all of those sources are nefarious, not all of them were seeking to. Uh, promote Putin's agenda by any stretch, but nevertheless, the, the Conservative Party were the main beneficiaries. Labour peers, Labour MPs have also had money from Russian sources. But I, I think maybe there's also a, a, a deeper thing, but it is connected with this. And Peter Dukes has written about this a lot on the Byline Times, Hardeep, about the extent to which Putin did have an agenda to split the UK from the EU to kind of weaken the European Union, to weaken the NATO alliance. So some of the oligarchs may well have been promoting that agenda or attempting to by using their financial influence. But we also have this 
whole information war waged by mm-hmm. Putin and his proxies against the UK and the West in general. Yeah, and I'm so glad that uh, Cara Cadwallader's uh, epic Twitter threads uh, and all her work on this and her writings are now being looked at again, um, you know, in light of the war in Ukraine, because that's exactly what uh, her and other journalists have been saying for a number of years. But it's just easier to see it now that actually this is a long war. I mean, it was the Ukrainians uh, very firm that look, this was going on in 2014 uh, when the eastern part of our country was being invaded. But even, you know, I think Kathy's right as well. It, it sort of goes beyond even that. It's a much longer span. And yeah, I mean, there is as Peter Jukes and Carol have outlined, um, and also military studies that, you know, Byline Times has published that um, were commissioned by the US, uh, one in 2011, one under the Trump administration. Uh, That's the opinion of security analysts that actually Putin has had this very long war uh, planned. You know, he has a plan for uh, sort of Eurasian empire or the recreation of it, which actually isn't going back to Soviet times, but is, is more fascistic in, in what it wants to achieve. It wants to take uh, Russia back to almost a sort of a czarist uh, society and all that comes with that. And part of the plan was destabilizing the West, destabilizing alliances like the EU and NATO, which we can see now with the invasion taking place, how key they are. And Brexit was a part of that. And Peter Dukes has written um, an article for Byline Times called uh, Putin's Plot Against Britain and How He Got Away With It, which I'd encourage everyone to read because he literally documents uh, lots and lots of evidence which pieced together. You can see that you know, that that was the, the intent was there. Um, so, yeah, and I think it's both. I think it's sort of that mixed with op- opportunity as well, you know, opportune opportunism from certain, you know, Russian oligarchs and and the city of London. You know, how's it how's it been built into the city? It is with lots and lots of money pouring in. So I think all of that is in the mix. But I think it's it's the, the nexus between people who have been in positions of power, what decisions they've made and why they've made them. And how has that propped up otherwise, you know, in not so many words, the ultimately a regime which is now murdering thousands and thousands of people. Interesting stuff. I just want to say hello to some of our listeners today, uh, to Jonta, to Tracy, to Anna, uh, to Paddy, to Seraphim, to Robert, to Alexander, to Sai, to Kathy, to Tamara. If you want to join in, there is a little microphone icon in the bottom left of your screen. Tap that to request access. And if you've got a reasonable comment to make or a question to make, we'll let you on and you can ask Hardeep. We're also going to be talking before too long about Britain's embrace of Saudi Arabia now that British, now that Russian oil and gas is off limits. Uh, Hardeep, one name that has cropped up frequently in recent days have been has been that of Egveni Lebvedev, the newspaper. Mm proprietor, the son of a KGB agent, though, of course, none of us would like to be judged by what our parents did or what our parents are. But he was a man who Boris Johnson was warned was a security risk before he was appointed to the House of Lords. Johnson Mm. went ahead and appointed him anyway. I should just say, Lebedev himself made a, a, a really a passionate plea in the Evening Standard, which, of course, he owns in an editorial to say, please accept me, I'm British. I, You know, I have Russian ancestry, but I was brought up in Britain. He's proud of his uh, social campaigns. He says, I may have a Russian name, but that makes me no less committed or a proud British citizen than anyone else in this country. Being Russian does not automatically make one an enemy of the state. And it's crucial we don't descend into Russophobia like mm. any other phobia, bigotry or discrimination. So he does make a pretty stout and robust defence of himself. But the relationship with Lebedev is one of those which people have pointed to as a, a potential point of weakness for Boris Johnson. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think, as you say, the, the key word there was defense, the key words there were defense of himself, uh, because if we go further back in time and we look at uh, some of the things that uh, Evgeny Lebedev has said about when Crimea was annexed and the Putin regime, and interestingly, how Boris Johnson's sort of thoughts uh, around that subject weirdly in some ways were mirrored around that same time 
Um, it is quite different. You know, it, it, I don't think Evgeny Lebedev has always uh, publicly, uh, I think this is, yeah, he's defending himself. He's come, coming out and, and sort of making the case that actually there's there's nothing that, he, that he's doing wrong. And, you know, it's Putin, it's Putin's war. But again, the, the, the connections or the you know the the relationships between the Lebedevs and and Putin uh, have been documented, uh, and yeah, Boris Johnson and Evgeny Lebedev are very close friends. Uh, they that friendship has developed over a number of years since uh, Johnson was mayor of London. Uh, lots of letters that Valentine's obtained from that time show that these men have a really yeah, like friendly, easygoing relationship, always having, you know, lunches during that period, supporting each other on various projects, whether that's um, sort of Russian Ukrainian festivals being held in London or publicity for rough sleeping in the Evening Standard independent newspapers. That's that's been going on. We know that Johnson has been at parties in, in Italy uh, where uh, Alexander Lebedev has been present, uh, Evgeny's father. And then, of course, we've got this peerage. And John Sweeney uh, was the first one for Byline Times to report this a few years ago that actually uh, secure, the security services had, had raised concerns and following a meeting between Johnson and Lebedev uh, that was kind of overridden and Johnson gave him the peerage. It was really interesting because the other day in the news, newsroom we were sort of um, one of our one of my reporters said well um, he's never voted in the House of Lords he's never turned up or voted at all Lord Lebedev and I sort of made the point well yeah he was never Maybe he was never going to. Maybe that's the point. Maybe giving him a peerage wasn't really about making him a member of the the upper chamber of the legislature. Maybe it was uh, a signal of his status, not only in this country, uh, but the status he could command back in Russia, uh, where, you know, I'm sure people uh, would have noticed that uh, this very prominent media baron has now been elevated to a lordship uh, based on his very close relationship with Johnson. So I think that's very interesting. Whether it was ever about Lebedev voting in the House of Lords, I I really doubt it. I think it was more about the status he had elevated himself to in the eyes of the Russians in Britain. Baron Lebedev of Siberia as he uh, likes to model himself on various occasions, which really does, in light of what's happened now in Ukraine, have a horrible, grim irony about it. In terms of Boris Johnson's complicity or awareness in terms of Russian involvement, though, I personally, Hardy, would really mm. go back. I mean, these things are all interconnected, aren't they? They're all yeah. pieces of a jigsaw, and we, we don't have, perhaps all of the pieces yet, you know, and that perhaps goes to the heart of your argument about why we need an inquiry into this. But there is such a whiff around the delayed publication of the Russia report and the the fact that Johnson was responsible for delaying its publication, for giving what other former ministers said were entirely bogus reasons for the delay in publication. The fact that it was apparently on the grounds of national security so heavily redacted and its lack of uh, it pointing to the lack of official curiosity around what happened with regard to the EU referendum and possible Russian interference. Yeah, it's, it's really telling, isn't it, Adrian, that he actually did suppress it. That's telling in itself that there must have been something in it that concerned him or made him think would appear in a negative light to the public or other, to, you know, the media or other politicians. That meant that he didn't want it out there before the 2019 election. So that in itself is interesting. It points to... Uh, it points to Johnson himself knowing that the conclusion in that report, as you say, that the security services had, ra- have, you know, have not really looked into Russian interference because no one has said to them it's priority, even though there's all this evidence uh, swimming around us that uh, Russian influence is a problem. Um, that that is really significant, and you know, just there are so many things that have happened under Boris Johnson's watch. I mean, it's hard to you know, even the Partygate stuff seems like years and years ago, <laughs> because there have been so many things that have been scandalous. But you know, just zooming out, the fact that he was suppressing a parliamentary report, the Prime Minister using his executive power, said, "I don't want this published. I don't want what's in it to be revealed," and it was still heavily, you know, still redacted. So we still haven't seen all of it um 
that that is that's a that's uh, you know beggars belief that that was going on and it's really interesting to hear johnson now i mean i think he gave a speech saying the other just yesterday saying we the west we we really failed we we did we turned you know we didn't realize uh how much of a threat putin was it's just so hard to hear him say these things it's so hollow when you've got things like the Russia report being suppressed, you know, and that was yeah. sounding well, embarrassing. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, I mentioned earlier this article in the Times by Baron Finkelstein, mm. by Danny Finkelstein, and I mean. The narrative that the Byline Times has put forward around Johnson and around Russia is one that is vigorously contested by Finkelstein. And it's interesting that such a a senior Conservative Party grandee has come out and said these things rather than, as he might have done, saying, hmm, maybe there were some things that we didn't realise at the time and that perhaps we didn't fully understand but now we need to investigate. I think that would be an honourable and a reasonable thing to do. I'm not saying that Danny Finkelstein is dishonourable, by the way, but you could understand how somebody might acknowledge that they hadn't quite grasped this story because it is such a big one and there are so many strands to it. But Finkelstein stands counter to the narrative that we've been hearing on this. And I would urge people, albeit that the Times is behind a paywall, to go and have a look at his article if you can possibly find it, because it is quite interesting. But one of, and and essentially all the points that we've raised today, he he rebuts. And here's just one paragraph, one short paragraph from his article. He says, as for the theory that Brexit was the result of Russian influence, it would help if there was actually any evidence that it was, rather than face the truth that it was brought about by, you know, the British people. Now, I personally find that disingenuous because the whole point of, well, not the whole point, but one of the key points of the Russia report is to identify the fact that this question could not be asked by the intelligence and security services. It was beyond their remit because to have interfered, Mm. it would have been seen as interference by the intelligence and security services had they investigated that. So there's a gap in understanding. There's a gap of evidence. Uh, Well, of course there is because no one official has been authorised to investigate it. Yeah. And it's not it's not I don't think what's being advanced is by the counter to Finkelstein is, oh, well, Russia was Russian influence was why the Brexit vote went the way it did. I don't think that is what's being advanced. I think what people are saying, journalists have have been saying, is that there is, you know, there is evidence which suggests that it uh, helped nudge uh, the leave vote further that way. Whether it was the definitive thing that ultimately swung the whole referendum is a different matter. But the the thought of any influence uh, or any interference in in elections in another country, uh, of course, that's going to have some effect on the eventual result. And I think this was the this is the other point, you know, Brexit and the role it has played within the Russian interference uh, story. Because as as you were saying, Adrian, this this sort of long information war that Putin uh, had had a plan for, part of which was destabilizing the West. Things like Brexit have certainly done that. Uh, but then Brexit itself, once it happened, uh, became a sort of weapon weapon in its own right. You know, a weapon and and also a whole a, pro- a cause that you know a revolutionary cause almost that Johnson said he was leading, and all the people around him in that nexus again that we talk about so much the, the political media class the establishment of that they were then invested in something and the result of that investment meant well any questioning of russian interference in the referendum was immediately dismissed as a conspiracy theory a ramona plot you know nothing nothing that we should be looking into because brexit is brexit it's the will of the people and so how these two things have entwined russian interference and brexit uh and how they have sort of the dynamic between how they propped each other up is it really needs to be looked at I also find this, kind of again, this irony that Brexit was fought to some extent on a question of patriotism stroke nationalism. It was certainly fought on a basis of British sovereignty. Now, I would have thought that if you are somebody who describes yourself as a British patriot, 
if you are somebody who cares about our national sovereignty and if that conjunction of beliefs leads you to support the idea of Brexit, which is an entirely reasonable view to take. Mm. If you hold that view, then surely it is really important to you that this country, that the United Kingdom should have democratic elections free of interference from any other country. You would think that the Brexiteers would be up at the ramparts saying, we (laughs) want to know. You know, if if this is what they care about, is Britain standing alone and Britain standing free and independent, whichever way the referendum vote went and whichever side of that argument you stood on, Mm. you should be demanding the truth of this story. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right, Adrian. And sovereignty isn't just uh, you know Brit- British sovereignty, and and of course it's about our elections being free and fair and not having interference. But it's also about having a British politics which doesn't have influence in it from other countries, whether they mean you well or otherwise. Uh, that is also at the heart of Britain being sovereign, about its political system being sovereign to the people. You know, and, and that's the biggest. But I think that point you make about you know if they really were patriotic the brexiters would would be demanding for this issue to be looked into um because british british you know sovereignty and being a sovereign nation and self-rule is so much at the heart of britain but yet we we know and this is what you'll be coming on to that boris johnson is going to saudi arabia today you know there, there are other partnerships and relationships that exist between britain and other you know, questionable regimes around the world. They, they still do. Uh, that's been going on for years. So this notion that Britain has always been this, this great power that stands alone, um, well, well, does it stand alone when it's swimming in Russian money, going to uh, questionable regimes to, to beg for oil, um, and sort of has very little influence to actually achieve anything in terms of Ukraine? You know, we're not part of the EU, we're part of NATO, but you know, what gravitas does it have? What greatness is it? Is it sort of putting out into the world? Uh, I think that's that's all a myth, actually. And to even entertain the possibility that Russian interference or influence could have affected things like Brexit, and is actually there's a lot of um, Russian influence swimming at the heart of our politics. I think it exposes that lie. We'll talk about Saudi Arabia in a minute, hard deep, and uh, welcome your thoughts, your comments, your questions as well. If you do want to join in our conversation, if you've got something to to add, if you've got a a thought that we haven't expressed, or if you've got a question that you want to ask, by all means, do get in touch. In the bottom left hand of your screen, you'll see a little microphone. You tap on that to request access, and, uh, well, if I like the cut of your jib, I might just let you on. Seriously, we're here till one o'clock, so we're very keen and very happy to take your calls and your comments and your questions. Just a reminder that you're listening to Byline Radio and you may be listening to this a little later on as well via the Byline Times podcast. So if you do want to join in uh, on the podcast, that's obviously not possible, but you can leave us a uh, comment on Twitter at Byline Times Pod. But if you're listening to us live on Byline Radio, then you can join in. But as I say, you might be listening on the podcast as well. Either way, uh, we hope you're in Enjoying it. And just to remind you that this is all funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times Hardeep Ed. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper, a good old fashioned traditional inky newspaper called the Byline Times, which brings together some of the best articles from our website, bylinetimes.com, and some additional material that you can't find online. And if you do take out a subscription or a membership to the Byline Times, you're helping to support Byline Radio the Byline Times podcast, Byline TV, and that news-breaking website as well. So just go to bylinetimes.com to find out how you can, how you can subscribe and uh, keep us all in useful employment. Thank you very much indeed. We are an independent news source. We are free from fear or favour. We just believe that we tell it like it is. And there's a great tweet from our founder, uh, co-founder Peter Dukes yesterday saying that uh, – The key thing about journalism isn't to be neutral. It is to be accurate. It is to tell the truth. And whether you agree with us or whether you don't, and sometimes you will and sometimes you won't on Byline Times, that's what we stand on, a commitment to truth and telling it like it is. Uh, Let's speak to – oh, Asad's joined us now. Excellent. Delighted to say that. Uh, Asad Rayman. Hello, Asad. Hello. How are you doing? 
Well, he would have joined us if, I, if I'd clicked his button properly. So. <laughs> Asad, hello. You're right. I am indeed. Oh, good. Delighted. Is it is it Asad? Do I pronounce yeah, yeah, it right? Yeah, it's Asad Raymond, yeah. Nice to speak. Asad Raymond from uh, the Director of War on yeah. Once. And uh, we've been talking about Britain's embrace of Putin, Asad. Now the embrace of Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia, a country which only a few days ago we learned had gone on a, well, a state-sanctioned killing spree. 81 people executed. Uh, absolutely. And I think, as Hadid was just saying, look, uh, when we look at, you know, the question of sovereignty and, and interference in other countries, you know, UK's role has been pretty dire and bloody all around the world, you know, whether it's been taking part in overthrowing of democratically elected governments such as Mossadegh in Iran or uh, supporting a dictator like Pinochet or even uh, as, as South African apartheid. And, of course, it's now been brought into uh, 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 right in front of us, uh, because our Prime Minister is jetting off to Saudi Arabia and he, he said, we face a new reality we have to confront together with our allies. And I'm visiting Saudi Arabia and United Arab, Arab Emirates, who are key partners in ensuring regional security and stabilising global energy markets uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And of course, uh, what's, what he won't be talking about will be the fact that the very things that he's condemning that are taking place in Ukraine, the devastating attacks on civilians, well, UK weapons have been used in devastating attacks by our ally, Saudi Arabia, uh, an authoritarian dictatorship, which has killed thousands of civilians and created the world's largest humanitarian crisis. And I think... You know, people forget that this has been a five years of war in Yemen, where the Saudi-led coalition has targeted hospitals, clinics, infrastructure, displacement of people, has bombed agriculture, has restricted humanitarian aid. So much so that now two-thirds of the Yemeni people, that's 20 million people, require humanitarian assistance, including two and a half million children under five. We've got five million people on the brink of starvation in Yemen, four million people displaced, and every nine minutes a child is dying as a result of that conflict. And we are not just appeasing and aligning with that uh, regime, but we're actually arming that regime. We sell arms to Saudi Arabia to the tune of 20 billion. And it's interesting, right, when you see this conversation, for example, about Ukraine and no-fly zones and the role of the, of the, of the Russian Air Force. Uh, well, you know, BAE, which is a UK company, has explicitly said, look, without our 6,700 employees in Saudi Arabia, you know, servicing and maintaining those systems, the Saudi Air Force would be grounded within seven days. So there is a hypocrisy, of course, in terms of, the war and the conflict uh, on one level. The second one, of course, is, you know, I was there in Glasgow in November, uh, the climate talks, and uh, when the Prime Minister stood up and said, we're at one minute to midnight, and he talked about, you know, the need for getting rid of our addiction to fossil fuels. Uh, it seems that all he's really worried about is addiction to what kind of flag flies on our fossil fuels, rather than actually focusing on the real things that he needs to be doing, and which we all know. If you really wanted to move away from our addiction on fossil fuels, retrofit everybody's homes, get energy efficiency, roll out new renewables, have a just transition for workers, are all things that the government has been blocking for the last 10 years. I said, really good contribution. Please stay there. We'll try and bring you back very shortly, and Hardeep as well. But uh, Alex has joined us, and Alex wants to make a comment. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm doing okay, I guess. Thank you very much for letting me talk. And uh, my comments are, well, <laughs> okay. So uh, once again, to those who don't know who I am, I'm Ukrainian-American, the guy who was born and raised in the Soviet Union, who knows Soviet propaganda firsthand from the inside, how to use it to persuade Westerners to love socialism and communism. I also know how to use counter-propaganda as well. It's much easier because then you'll be telling the truth. I came to the United States in 2001. My family, part of it, is still in Ukraine. They were in Ukraine when the war started. 
I was able to warn them 15 minutes before the actual bombs touched the ground, so to speak. So they were able to get out of the most dangerous place, the Brisbane Airport, where my daughter and granddaughter happened to be. Uh, my mom was in Kiev, so another primary target, Trayeshina, that's the Kiev, Kiev region where she lives. She lived. Uh, now they are all three of them are in Poland, and my mom will remain in Poland for quite some time. She has an open U.S. visa. She does not need U.S. embassy to come here to the U.S. Joining either me or my brother, but with my granddaughter, and the situation is much more complex. She was denied U.S. F1 student visa in U.S. by U.S. embassy in Warsaw, Poland, for no reason at all. Uh, basically, I have it all in writing. So they denied F1 visa that has been filed long before the war. <clears throat> The reasons for denial were, first, you, you, means my granddaughter, Julia, has too many relatives already in the United States. In particular, her mom, her brother, her grandfather, and grandmother are already in the United States, which is true. Julia is the only one who is not in the United States. Reason number two was, uh, I cannot understand reason number two at all. Reason no, number two Alex, sounds I mean, like, it, it, it sounds like a sad story of being denied access. Yes, I want States. to... What, what, bigger, what bigger point do you draw from that? I will come to that in 35 seconds from now. So the reason number two is close is that college is too close to the place where she lives, or she would live in the U.S. Three miles. I don't know what to draw from that. Now, the reason I am telling you this sad story. Many of you guys are trying to help Ukrainians. Like, what can we do? Here is what can you do. You guys can sponsor Ukrainian refugees, so they can come to Great Britain. Great Britain now welcomes citizens or refugees from Ukraine if they have somebody already in the UK or if someone from the UK with no relations, no relationships, just wanted to sponsor refugees from Ukraine. That's what you can do. Now, I've already seen <laughs> that there is an impatience from the host, so I will turn off my mic. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> okay, Alex, thank you. I just wasn't sure where you were going with that, but you've made an interesting point and a very valid point, and I thank you very much for taking part. Let's see if we can bring in Tamara, because Tamara, you've asked to join in today, and I know that you were tweeting this morning, actually, about the subject we're discussing now with Asad Raymond and with uh, Hardeep, which is this question of Western hypocrisy, British hypocrisy around Saudi Arabia relative to Putin's Russia. That's for you. That's your cue there, Tamara. I'm so sorry. That's what you're talking to Hardeep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, whenever I watch the news... I'm kind of anticipating them talking about Yemen. And I think I've only ever heard one broadcaster even bring it up. Like they talk about the beheadings and et cetera, et cetera. But nobody's really talking about uh, Yemen and the Yemeni people. Um, it, I just can't seem to um, get my head around it. And now I've forgotten the point I was going to... Oh, no, this is what I wanted to say. Um, I wanted to ask um, Assad... Um, Obviously, we know we don't we don't want Russian oil. We don't want Saudi Arabian oil. We don't want them to start fracking here again, right? But obviously, there has to we have to do something for the meantime. How long um, will it could it take 
to get those things installed and ready to go. So how long would we have, like if, if um, somebody with common sense was running it, um, how long would we have to rely on oil from somewhere else? Like how quick, realistically, can, can we um, just be on to renewables? Because obviously we have to have a way out of this situation, don't we? I'm happy to answer that. I mean, look, I, we, we, we know we've got a cost of living crisis. We've got rising energy prices. We've got the reality of people either freezing or starving. And that, of course, yeah. is not about, you know, one decision. That's because we've seen a decade of of decisions, the austerity yeah, totally. uh, of creating a low wage economy. The fact that we've got, you know, 15 million people in this country living in poverty, you know, and we're going to see six point six and a half million people in energy poverty. So there are some immediate things that the, the government can do. I mean, the chancellor is going back to make a statement next week. I mean, he could first step would say, let's do a windfall tax on the energy companies. Right? Yeah. The fact that they've handed out over $127 billion in dividends to their shareholders, the BP and Shell are talk about their energy companies as being cash machines, right? Yeah, yeah, so I had the same uh, comment. <laughs> yeah, those immediate things that can be done. And look, in other countries like France, it's been done, energy caps are at 4% because windfall. But the, but the actual way to solve this crisis is to reduce our dependency on fossil fuels. And that it means retrofit every single home. Massive rollout. It'll be good, create new good jobs, union jobs. It will boost the economy. And, of course, it cuts our, our emissions. We can- uh, Asset, can I just cut across you there and say, Tamara, if you go to the Byline Times podcast site, if you just Google Byline Times podcast and listen to yesterday's episode, we actually discussed this in some detail with people like the former Labour MP and climate consultant Alan Simpson. And it's, <coughs> excuse me. It's not something that you could do overnight. You know, there is unquestionably a, a, a short-term issue in terms of energy, but the kind of measures that Assad is talking about, about retrofitting, about ensuring that there are strict regulations yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, on um, insulation yeah. for new homes, you, not only could you reduce, uh, you know, the, the reliance of ordinary people on oil from Russia or Saudi Arabia, you could actually create hundreds of thousands of jobs in the meantime, thus yeah, totally. generating more income for the Treasury. I mean, creating a really virtuous cycle. What you need to do is have the will to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what I like we're, we've... Um painted ourselves into a corner and when I say we I mean the government has painted us into a corner where it feels like in like immediately there are no good options so I guess um I guess I would wonder what would be an immediate thing that we or what is the best of the bad options I guess yeah, well, uh, I mean, we do have an immediate crisis, not least because we've allowed the situation to yeah, totally, yeah. uh, for many years. And, and in fairness to Assad, although he's answered that very well, he isn't, you know, an energy expert. So, uh, yeah. But um, have, have a listen to yesterday's podcast, though, of, of this programme, because a lot of the questions that you raised were addressed in that and how we can wean ourselves off fossil fuels and indeed why we must wean ourselves off fossil fuels. A really moving contribution from a 24-year-old yeah, woman. No, I heard her. Yeah, I Yeah. It was. Um, I thought she was brilliant. It really. Yeah, um, cloudier, wasn't it? Yeah, it really pulled up my heartstrings. I felt really felt for her. Yeah, let, let me ask uh, Asad something as well. Thank you, Tamara. Really Pleasure. appreciate it. Asad, I just want to make clear because you know you've been very eloquent in your criticism of Johnson's uh, going to Saudi Arabia and seeking Saudi oil. Essentially, what I think you're saying is that what people are seeing in the UK on our television, what we are being rightfully appalled by in Ukraine with the attack by Russia is almost exactly mirrored by what Saudi Arabia is doing and has been doing for many, many months in Yemen. It's the same thing, apart from the fact that one group of repugnant authoritarian killers are our mates and another group of repugnant authoritarian killers are perceived as not being our mates. Uh, absolutely, and it's on every single level. If you want to talk about the oligarchs 
you know, washing their money in the laundromat of London. Well, look at who are the oligarchs. Yes, there are Russian oligarchs, but there are also Saudi oligarchs right here. If you wanted to say, you know, if you took that action against Chelsea and Abramovich, why not against Newcastle and the fact that it's owned by the Saudi government? We see in sports washing. It's it's. The hypocrisy is incredible, right? And and you're absolutely right. What we're seeing here is, and the reason why we are in this moment where actually international law, respect for international law is at its lowest is because we have seen this uh, government, including our own, use a different lens. They don't stand up for the universality of international law or humanitarian assistance or refugee protection uh, on any of these measures we can already see you know uh, absolutely if those are committed by uh, allies whether that's israel morocco saudi arabia etc then of course it's allowed if it's committed by others then we have a focus on them where actually what we need and we need a foreign policy which is ethical we need an energy policy which is absolutely committed to tackling the climate crisis and moving away from that but actually we need a government that will stand up for human rights both here and globally you know it's it's we are fueling you know the very uh, we are fueling uh, those that back putin to say well actually see the uk is hypocritical why is it talking about all the thing, all everything about the Putin regime when it's you know gland hardening the Saudi regime day a day after it's just executed eighty one people. I mean it's it's incredible hypocrisy from the government and hard deep from the perspective of byline times. Given that our outlets function really as a check and as an antidote to mainstream media, it really is striking, isn't it? If we take assets, uh, assets premise. At face value, and I think most people who've looked a little bit into the Saudi Arabia and Yemen situation uh, would be willing to do so. The, the the parallels are striking, yet the difference in coverage is astonishing. You could replace those pictures of ordinary Ukrainians sitting outside their tower blocks that have been bombed with pictures of ordinary Yemenis. Mm, I but, think that but, but, yeah, but, we, but we don't sorry go on. yeah we don't and I think the other thing that's probably been at the forefront of a lot of our minds listening, listening to it is that yeah well, why is that the case you know what why is it the case that uh, we seem to identify with care more about uh, you know a, a European nation being invaded but not uh one that's uh being you know bombed uh further afield well what is it uh, about that distinction does one service and one one doesn't as, as you were saying i also think there's something the other angle on all of this is what does global britain actually what is global britain in po in a post-brexit world you know as we talked about earlier you know Brexit was all about parliamentary sovereignty, Britain, a beacon of democracy and freedom. But we've shown on Byline Time, Sam Bright, I think, did an article yesterday looking at, uh, I think it was Saudi Arabia that was going to do one um, on all, all the countries that are on the government's own human rights watch list and the extent to which trade increased with those countries um, in recent years. And global Britain is about uh, a Britain that's not attached to the EU and has all these to go out into the world, trade deals with, with other nations. So we need to be looking at what those nations are doing and the extent to which they are suppressing freedom and civil rights in their countries. So Yeah, I suppose, I suppose, sorry to interrupt, Hardy. I mean, there is a real politic argument here that the United Kingdom can choose to do what it needs to do mm. in its own self-interest as it perceives that at any given moment. Some people might say that's an entirely legitimate thing to do, but if that is your global stance, that we will do whatever we need to do for us at that particular time, then why bother sanctioning Russian oligarchs? Why bother cutting off your nose to spite your face mm. by denying yourself Russian oil and gas? And you say, no, 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 we're, you know, we're taking a high-minded, principled approach here. Well, if you're going to take a high-minded, principled approach here, 
why not there? And if you take it here and not there, then you are de facto guilty of hypocrisy. Yeah, and also, if you only perceive something as a as a threat when it seem when it gets to an extreme point where it could affect you, but you've turned a blind eye to it all along otherwise, then that has real repercussions. You know, Putin arguably has been emboldened by the fact that he invaded a part of Ukraine in 2014, and nothing was really done about it. The Skripal poisonings, we you know, a few spies were thrown out of Britain, nothing was really done about it. So. So, yeah, you're right. If you want to go with pragmatism, go with pragmatism. But there are consequences of that. We're already seeing them play out. So arguably you get to a point where situations, conflicts, tensions around the world then end up in a very extreme position. And whatever you do, you're compromised, really. Hardeep, thank you so much for your time. It's been really good to uh, chat yeah, with you. Thank, thank you. you. It's been, been really, really enjoyable. Oh, I nearly dropped my phone there. So. Thank <laughs> uh, but you. It's, it's, been, it's been great to have you on board. Uh, thank you also to Assad from uh, War on Rock. Great to speak to you, Assad. I hope we speak to you A real again. pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank uh, you. Uh, it's been a really fascinating hour. Thank you to everybody who's listened and taken part. Uh, this uh, episode of Byline Radio will be available to listen again on the Byline Times podcast. Maybe this is how you are listening to it. If you are, please spread the word. We spend all the money that we get on putting out content, on putting out the good stuff via the bylinetimes.com, via the Byline Times newspaper. So please do some of the heavy lifting for us. Please spread the word via social media if you can, whether it's to do with Byline Radio, the Byline Times, the Byline Times podcast, the Byline TV. I'm sure I've left something out there. But, uh, you know, anything you can do to spread the word and share the message is really good. All we're concerned about as a journalistic enterprise is telling the truth. So support us if you can. Take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Go to bylinetimes.com to find out how. We'll be back again tomorrow. We're here now Monday to Friday at noon with what the papers don't say. My name is Adrian Goldberg. Thank you to Asad Raymond. Thank you to Hardeep Matharu. And thank you for listening and taking part. Good luck. See you tomorrow. Cheers.